Welcome to Hymn Talk, a discussion of hymns, music, and singing in the life of the church. I'm Zach DeBrima, and with me is my brother Alex. Alex, how are we doing? I'm doing very well. Trying to uh, make the most of the quarantine, staying at home, but uh, but overall doing well. Well, Alex, we're sending this out on Good Friday morning. Mm-hmm. Easter is Sunday, and churches, at least in North Carolina, are not permitted to meet this Lord's Day. But I would say... There is nothing that can keep these two evangelicals from celebrating the gospel and the atonement on Good Friday. So that's our subject for today, for this episode of Hymn Talk, is the atonement and how the atonement influences our singing. So just real quickly, Alex, how would you define atonement? I suppose the simplest definition uh, I would give is payment for sin. If If I'm trying to be very concise, very to the point... Atonement is to make payment for sin, to offer a sacrifice for sin. If I wanted to be a little more theological about it, I would probably say that uh, atonement is is a payment for sin, um, yielding a restored relationship between the offender and the offended party, uh, the sinner and the one sinned against. The atonement brings about reconciliation uh, between the two parties. Uh, restoration, redemption, um, but but at its at its root, atonement is a, a sacrifice for sin, a substitute for sin, payment for actual sin that's been been committed. That's that's probably how I think about it. Well, Alex, we are a part of a Reformed church, mm-hmm. meaning that we are of a Calvinist persuasion, mm-hmm. meaning that we believe in the doctrine of limited atonement. Sure, which is an unfortunate term. We probably favor the the, the term particular redemption. But oh, yeah. could you explain what is limited atonement, and is that anything particularly different than what you just described? Yeah, the the I, I like you said. I I think limited atonement is an unfortunate term. Um, Definite atonement is a better term, or particular redemption. Um, the the issue with that adjective limited, or particular, or definite, is that you're trying to get at the actual extent of the atonement, um, and even the intent of the in- atonement. So the question you're asking in debates surrounding limited atonement is, for whom did Jesus die? Hmm. Mm-hmm. For whom did Jesus shed his blood? For whom did Jesus make atonement. Mm. And those who hold to the limited atonement position would argue that Jesus Christ died particularly, definitely, truly mm-hmm. for uh, the elect. Mm-hmm. So, so, so not for every single person in the world, but particularly the elect who the Lord is called and justified and will, will eventually glorify. There's a, a, a way in which, I, I should just say this, there's a way in which specialists have this conversation as in those who are experienced and learned in systematic theology and especially historical theology, that is going to introduce a lot more nuance into the conversation mm-hmm. surrounding limited atonement. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people out on the street will talk about views of the atonement mm-hmm. as though there are really only two, either you believe in limited atonement or a general atonement. Yeah. But really, again, specialists would appreciate that there are probably a half dozen or so views between those two. Mm-hmm. So it's probably most helpful if you want to be really precise and very nuanced there's a spectrum of views between a more general atonement and a and, and limited atonement. Mm. Um, but for the, for the purposes of this conversation, yeah, that's how I would define or, or it. Or the street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, 
I, I'm just very cognizant of how the, the, those on the street want to talk about limited atonement. And, and I, I'm burdened for the street, Zach. <laughs> I, I, I'm burdened, of course, for the academy also, but especially for the street. Uh, just quick biblical rundown. Why should, just based on scripture, why is limited atonement a compelling doctrine? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I think it's borne out biblically, if we're, if we're careful in interpreting the Bible. I do want to say the term limited atonement is a theological category that's not contained in the Bible. Hmm. The, the Bible is not in many places asking the question, hmm. what is the extent of the atonement? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, theologians have asked that question. And and again, just historically speaking, it, it's no coincidence then that this question really did not emerge in a major way until about 1,500 years after the scriptures were written mm. in terms of theologians debating about it. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, but, but I would argue for the, the definite atonement, limited atonement position uh, that it is present in the Bible from a couple of different angles. You certainly have s- statements that would indicate that Christ died particularly for his elect. Mm. Uh, so a passage like John 10, mm-hmm. where Jesus says that he lays down his life for the sheep. Yes. And in the language of John's gospel, Jesus is very cognizant of those who are part of his flock and those who are not. Those who are his and those who are not. Those who belong to him and those who are in the world. He makes those distinctions multiple times, especially in John 10 and in John 17, his high priestly prayer. And and there's this this special work of atonement he's accomplishing for his people there in John 10. Uh, in, in the book of Hebrews, it seems that Jesus' priestly ministry is carried out for and on behalf of the elect. He's interceding, not for every person in the world, but he's appearing as a mediator before God, as an intercessor, as a yes. high priest, particularly for the elect. So, so you have passages like that. What I am much more interested in talking about in conversations, when people want to debate the extent of the atonement, I don't want to talk so much about the extent of the atonement as I want to talk about the nature of the atonement. Hmm. What is atonement? Mm-hmm. And I would argue that those who, 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 would, who would want to argue for a more general atonement, Christ died for everybody, uh, assuming that they know what they mean by that language. It's not just a, a, um, a sort of flimsy statement someone's just throwing out there. If, if someone says, no, I believe Christ's atonement was for everyone, yes. I would want to ask them, what do you think atonement is? Yeah. So my argument would run along these lines. Take, for example, marriage. If, if you define marriage in its nature mm-hmm. as the covenantal union between one man and one woman, mm-hmm. and I tell you, I'm, I'm married, well, it would sort of be an odd question to ask, how many women are you married to? Yeah. I've just defined out of the equation with my definition of marriage, even the possibility that I'm married to multiple women. So if atonement is, as I suggested earlier, payment for sin, right. yielding, restored relationship, reconciliation between God and man, the offender and the offended. Mm-hmm. Well, then in what way could we possibly speak of God, uh, of, of Christ atoning for every person in the world? Wouldn't that mean all have to be saved? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if atonement, the idea of atonement, includes in its very nature and definition, these ideas of redemption and reconciliation and propitiation, and I say Jesus atoned for everyone, Hmm. would it not mean, by just the very definition of words, that Christ propitiated the wrath of God against everyone, Mm -hmm. that Christ redeemed everyone, that he reconciled everyone between... So so I want to have an exegetical conversation with people 
about what the meaning of the word atonement is. What is the atonement in its nature? And I think if we understand that correctly, well, then, then we'll stop the silliness of saying that Christ has atoned for everybody. We, mm. we, we wouldn't use mm-hmm. that kind of language. Mm-hmm. We'd realize, no, this very precious and, and, and dear doctrine, this very precious thing that Christ has accomplished, this work of atonement, is applied to the elect, and it brings with it all these accompanying benefits of propitiation, yeah. reconciliation, redemption, etc. Yeah. Yeah, I think of what Paul says in Acts 20 when he's he's, he's addressing a, a group of shepherds in Ephesus. He says, yes. he says uh, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Yes. There's an idea of dynamism that happened at the cross, that, that, that the, the, the Christ's death of the cross actually accomplished something it, it in pro- time. It procured a people. Yes. By that blood. I mean, that's payment language. That's what's a payment for sin. Redemption. He bought his people, purchased his people by his blood. And I do think if we begin to, to talk about Christ's death and his atonement, as applying in just this more general way or a hypothetical way, mm-hmm. I think we do, to put it somewhat polemically, mm-hmm. depreciate the value of Christ's blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, actually do damage to the very work that, that Christ has done. And I, this is borne out in hymnody. I mean, there are lots yeah. of hymn lines that come to my mind. Wh- one I often reference in conversations about this is, is in Christ alone. Mm. Till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Mm. For every sin on him was laid. I think it was here in the death of Christ our sin. Well, was Christ's wrath satisfied, God's wrath satisfied at the cross or not? Was mm-hmm. it actually satisfied right. or hypothetically satisfied? Yeah. If you will indeed have faith in him, that will sort of yes. actualize yeah. the benefits. It's like a vending machine. Right. So, so, so the vending machine is stocked with atonement juice. Yeah. I'm being a little bit crass, but yeah. it's, it's, it's stocked with benefits of the atonement. But you've got to bring your dollar of faith to the table, put it in, and that's actually what is bringing mm-hmm. the benefits for you. But the Lord has not brought the benefits to you in effect by his death, um, which is a view I, I don't think we can hold if we're thinking biblically. Yeah. So, so lest this conversation be a little too esoteric and, and not too meaningful for the Christian life or for hymnody, sure. uh, why is it important that Christians believe in particular redemption? I would argue, well, and we don't, we're not saying, Alex, that this is a necessary doctrine to be a Christian or to even be a member at our church. You know, we, we don't view it that way. Sure, sure. But, but we do view it as an important doctrine. Yeah. And, and in my experience, a lot of people who would say they don't believe in limited atonement do believe actually precisely what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. But they don't, either there's something about the language or maybe there's some principle they're trying to protect by not committing themselves to that position. I, I don't know exactly. But, but, Yes, I don't think this is like a, you have to have this particular view of the extent of the atonement to be a Christian, certainly not to be a member of our church. Um, but I, I would want to appeal to, to people that this, this is the right way, the best way to believe about the atonement of Christ, not only because I think it's clearly borne out in the Bible, mm-hmm. but more than that, I think it makes Christ's cross work sweeter. Mm. I think it yes. makes what the Lord yeah. has done for us sweeter. It makes his blood more precious. Mm-hmm. It makes the observance of communion uh, dearer to us and richer to us to recognize in those wounds, I find my salvation. By his blood, I have been redeemed. That to, to, to recognize that Christ took names with him to the cross and one of those names was my own. 
It's sort of like the effect I think that the doctrine of election sometimes has on people when they have that breakthrough and they appreciate election really is clearly plainly taught in the Bible and they realize what that means about the love of God towards yes. them. Yeah. You know, to, to think that in love he predestined us before the foundation of the world and, and that, that, that he set that kind of a love on me before I was ever born and and, and, and this sense that he's predestined me, he's called me, he's justified me, he will glorify me, that golden chain of salvation, it magnifies the love of God. Yeah. So too, I think particular redemption magnifies what Christ was doing on the cross, hmm. far from diminishing the significance of uh-huh. it and the power of it. Mm-hmm. It, it, it. It enhances it. And this is where, if I could just be, again, a little bit um, polemical, when you're talking about the limitation of the atonement, uh, 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 and, and the criticism comes, well, Alex, you, you are limiting the atonement. I want to turn that, that, that criticism right back on the, yeah. the, 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 the other side and say, no, it's not me who limits the atonement. I mean, maybe you say I'm limiting it in terms of extent. Mm-hmm. I'm saying you're limiting the power of the atonement, yeah. the nature of the atonement, the yeah. efficacy of the atonement, because if, if you say Christ died for everybody, mm-hmm. Well, well then, then what you're saying is he, he died for no one in particular. Mm, mm-hmm. His blood didn't actually procure salvation. Mm-hmm. His death actually didn't purchase people. His, his cross work didn't actually accomplish mm-hmm. salvation for yeah. people. There's, there's something else that's needed. There's something more that has to be done. He just made salvation hypothetically possible. Right. I say, that's the limitation I want to avoid and don't want anything to do with. I yeah. want I want to talk a lot about the power of the blood of Christ. And Alex, I just view this as just an intensely practical doctrine. Like like th- that gets me through Tuesday. Sure. Knowing that you know Jesus when he, when he went to the cross, he died for me. Yes. I think uh, you know we can talk about several hymns, but I think of the wonderful hymn uh, Church is One Foundation. From mm. from heaven he, heaven he came and sought her. Yeah. To be yeah. his holy bride. Yeah. That's not just poetry. That's truth. Yes. Jesus, Jesus came, went to the cross with names in his mind yes. of saints he was coming to redeem. And there's something wonderful, right, about that sort of particularity. Mm-hmm. He came from heaven to seek his bride, a particular bride. Mm-hmm. He, he wanted her uh, for reasons unknown to us. Why am I part of that bride? I don't have an answer to that question. But he came and he sought me. And that's, again, I just think that enhances our sense of intimacy with the Lord. I think it, it, it brings about... Uh, um, a richer appreciation for the love of Christ and the power of the gospel and his atonement, his work on the cross. What do you make of somebody who says, and I've heard this argument before, that the doctrine of, of definite atonement, limited atonement, is is more of just a logical, systematic deduction rather than biblically wrought. Like, oh, yeah. I, I get what you're saying about the meaning of words, Alex, but the Bible doesn't seem to frame it in that in that way explicitly. Yeah, uh, I had this exact conversation with a friend of mine, member of the church, who who believed in limited atonement, but he was lamenting this fact. I feel like I've only gotten there by logical deduction. Mm. Like, it makes a lot of sense to believe in limited atonement. And he was particularly saying, you know, I, I appealed to him, if 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 God poured out His wrath upon the Lord Jesus at the cross. Mm. Right, and we say, okay, Christ Jesus died for everyone, not just for the elect, but for everyone. And then some people don't come to faith in Christ, and they go to hell. Isn't that double jeopardy? That 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 God poured out His wrath on Jesus, mm. you know, who's dying for everyone, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then He pours out His wrath again on them in hell. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, and He said, well, that makes logical sense to me, but I don't see that 
you know, I, I just didn't arrive at that from a biblical standpoint. Right. What, what I would want to say to someone in that situation is, is notwithstanding the fact that the language of limited atonement is in some ways a theological imposition on the text to some degree. It's a theological term that we're bringing to bear upon the Bible and asking a question that the Bible doesn't necessarily pose. I want to say emphatically, this is not a logical deduction. It is a very careful, exegetical argument. Mm, mm -hmm. And I go back to the definition of words. Mm, mm -hmm. What does the Bible teach us atonement is? So for example, this isn't logic. This is exegesis. This is biblical theology. If I say to you, what happened to those Jews Mm -hmm. who in the land of Goshen put the reed in the blood and spread it over their doors. What happened to them? What happened to their firstborn sons right. when they did that? They're passed over. Yes, the angel of death came, looked at the blood, they passed over. In other words, the effect happened. Yeah. The blood had power. We know, of course, the blood of Christ symbolized there at right. the Passover. But right. the blood had an effect. Yeah. So, so, so is it then a logical deduction for me to say that's how atonement works? Hmm. No, it's, it's just drawing exegetical conclusions out of what the Bible teaches about atonement. A substitute. Uh, uh, if, if the lamb lays down his life for sinners, yeah. I would conclude um, those sinners are now freed from sin. They're forgiven. They're yeah. paid for. The substitute has died in their place. They can never die again. Yeah. And so I would just want to argue that's, that that is not... Well, let me kind of philosophically extrapolate here how I can make sense of the death of Christ. That is following and tracking very carefully with what the Bible teaches about this concept of atonement. Mm, mm -hmm. I would argue it's an an exegetical argument that I'm very happy makes a whole lot of logical sense as well. Yeah. Um, But I would appeal on the basis still of texts of the Bible, Mm, mm -hmm. my argument. Mm -hmm. I think it just goes without saying in a conversation like this, we should always acknowledge that there are godly, Bible-believing, gospel-loving saints that disagree with it, what we're saying. Sure. Yes. And, and and like I said, in the world of those who are thinking along the tracks of systematic theology and historical theology, there, there, there are some just very highly nuanced positions mm-hmm. between general atonement and limited atonement. Mm-hmm. That, uh, if I, could, I don't know if these names mean anything to, to the vast thousands who listen to this <laughs> podcast, but um, you have a guy like Richard Baxter— who definitely believed in a general atonement, right. and someone like John Owen, two Puritans who actually didn't always have the nicest things to say about each other. Mm-hmm. Let's let's pin them on either ends of the spectrum. Between the two of them, there's a large number of very great and godly men uh, and women who who have who have nuanced different positions. And so, I will just acknowledge to some degree I've kind of flattened things a little bit in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just s- some nuance in the conversation out there. When it comes to congregational singing, why should the atonement be given a special prominence in our singing? Uh, because I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say limited atonement, but penal substitutionary atonement. Yeah, is at the very heart of the gospel. Yeah, the reason the atonement should be so central in our singing is because the gospel should be central in our singing. Uh, because it is by the gospel that our sin is addressed, and we're made right with God and brought into right relationship with Him. And what is at the heart of the gospel? It is this this teaching, this event, that the Lord Jesus himself appeared as our substitute in our place, paying the penalty that was due to our sins to bring about a restoration of relationship, reconciliation between God and man. That's at the heart of the gospel. Mm. 
And if it's at the heart of the gospel, it should be, it should be the heart of our, our songs. Amen. I was so encouraged because I, I was looking back at our, at our old services. We, this is, I believe, this Easter will be the, our fifth week uh, where we have not been able to gather to worship God. Oh, wow. Okay. And the last week we, we gathered was March 8th. And I just went to look to see what were the songs that we sung that day. Yeah. And it was amazing to see how many of these songs, literally all five of them, explicitly reference the death of Christ. Wonderful. And it's not like every song in our catalog does, but, but it, it just shows that we want our services to be gospel-focused. We want our service to be Christ-focused. We want our songs to be cross-focused even, yes. showing how uh, important the atonement is. I just wanted to read some of these lines. I mean, the first, the first song was crown him with many crowns. Crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands, his side. Rich wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. All hail, Redeemer, hail, for thou hast died for me. Thy praise shall never, never fail throughout eternity. That was our opening song of praise. We went on to sing, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer, where we say, my guilt and cross laid on his shoulders. We sang, his mercy is more, where we said, what riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We sang, it is well. And who couldn't forget the third verse of it Mm, is well, mm -hmm. it is well, my sin Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. And I believe the song of response was, All I have is Christ, which we sing, You suffered in my place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm just so refreshed and encouraged to hear how prominent those themes are in those. All five of those are excellent songs. I, I, I would wonder, as you, as you, you know, are, are the one primarily responsible, not exclusively, but primarily responsible for researching songs for our church and kind of filtering through songs that are sent to you, going through hymn books, various resources. And as you kind of also look out upon what other churches are singing, maybe just evangelical hymnody in general, do you, are you pleased with generally the degree of, we've obviously talked at a high level of precision about what's going on with the cross and and the atonement. Do, Do you detect a general imprecision mm. in how people talk about what Christ is doing on the cross as something more general, more vague, or, or are, are you encouraged to think there's a great degree of precision in what's in what's conveyed in these songs? Yeah. If, if, if I had an unbelieving friend here, they could see precisely what yeah. we think is the relationship between sin and the cross. I am often saddened to see what I think is a, a, an impulse to whitewash the scandal of the cross hmm. in the sense that Christian people can sometimes be inclined to forget that at the center of our beliefs is a crucified man. Mm-hmm. We preach Christ crucified, right? Mm-hmm. He's the fulcrum of our of of our of what we proclaim. Yes, uh, and certainly is the same in, in what we sing. And I, I think there's there's too much uh, vagueness in, in a lot of singing that the, a lot of songs that are written. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I don't feel it's even enough to say that Jesus died. Mm-hmm. I think that something about talking about his wounds, his 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 hands and mm-hmm. his blood that flowed, mm-hmm. uh, uh, atonement is at the heart of the gospel, yeah. which means blood needs to cover us. Yeah. And I think that's often lost in a lot of songs that are written. So often when I'm preparing services for Emmanuel Church and I'm looking through the songs that we're singing, you know, everything's digital. I can look at things in Excel sheets and Word documents. I search, are we singing about the blood? Mm-hmm. 
Are we singing about the death of our Lord? Yes. Uh, because it's what we proclaim until he comes. Yeah. I wonder if, you know, we're talking about theories of the atonement in this in this podcast, in this episode. Uh, you know, one of the, the, it's called a theory of the atonement. It's really just a different angle on the atonement um, that, that is, is very significant in Christian history is this idea of Christus victor, mm-hmm. Christ's victory over evil and over death and, and all of that. And, and certainly all of us who are Orthodox will embrace something of Christus victor. We would probably all say that the theory of Christus victor is not sufficient in terms of having a proper full Lord view of, of the atonement because it doesn't really speak to uh, um, the sinner mm-hmm. and his need of a savior and the idea mm-hmm. of atonement uh, being a, a substitute and a sacrifice for sin, uh, a, a bearing of the penalty that's due towards mm-hmm. sin. I wonder sometimes, that's why I, I, I ask the question, if in a lot of modern praise music, praise songs, the perspective we get on the atonement doesn't necessarily rise, doesn't 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 rise above a Christus Victor view. Mm. So there's a lot of meditation on, you know, you 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 conquered death, conquered sin, evil, Satan, whatever. Mm-hmm. But sometimes that particularity mm-hmm. of of blood being shed to atone for my personal sins right. to satisfy the wrath of God uh, is isn't always always captured. But it, it's it's more more this larger. Jesus, you triumphed. Yeah, you know, on the cross. And yeah, I'm so thankful. Go, Jesus. And again, we should sing about Christ's triumph over yeah. the grave and over sin. But I do wonder sometimes we're missing out on the particular, like you say, the center of our religion is blood. Right, blood shed for sin. Well, and I think you should also understand something like that in the context of of Christ's entire person and work. Mm. I mean, Christ didn't just die. You know, he was incarnate, he lived a perfect life, he died, he rose again, and he's seated at God's right hand. Yeah. And and victory over that is, is is victory over sin and death is is seen in the context of that entire cluster. Yes. You know, I think I think first Corinthians fifteen would speak a ton to that. If got, when Jesus rose from the dead, as we'll celebrate in a couple of days, yes. that's when he, he he really put the guy the kibosh on death yes. and yeah. sin. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I, I would not want to to purge our hymnody of songs that are very heavy on Christus Victor. I was more speculating, is that theory of the atonement and that aspect of the atonement what is maybe being emphasized more so to the diminishing to some degree, the obscuring of some degree of, of the bloodshedding as payment for sin, right. which is much more prominent mm-hmm. in the evangelical hymns of the 18th century, 19th century, um, and, and certainly in the hymns you just mentioned yeah. as well. Any other thoughts on the atonement before we move to our hymn of the week? Uh, no, I, I think it, it should be prominent in our singing. It's it's at the heart of the gospel. It should be at the heart of our preaching, heart of our singing, heart of our prayers, um, because it is, um, in many ways, the very big thing hmm. in, in the Bible. Hmm. Well, excellent. Well, our hymn of this week is Man of Sorrows, also known as Hallelujah, What a Savior. And this is a hymn by Philip Bliss. Bliss was born in 1838. He died in 1876. And he was a Midwestern American man who was converted at the young age of 12. And for much of his life, he was an itinerant music teacher. But he uh, eventually found support of himself as a singing evangelist. 
Now, you might know uh, George Beverly Shea. Uh, it was a famous uh, uh, musician who accompanied Billy Graham in a lot of his evangelistic rallies in the 20th century. Well, it, it would have been common in the postbellum America, I think the 1860s, 70s, and 80s, for traveling uh, songwriters and hymn writers to accompany the great evangelists of the day. Mm-hmm. Bliss partnered with men like D.L. Moody and Daniel Whittle uh, back in the day, and this is how Bliss served God's kingdom until his early death. And his death was actually quite tragic. At the age of 38, both he and his wife died in a train accident on the way to an evangelistic rally in Chicago, where he was, he was going on his way to meet D.L. Moody. Now, Bliss wrote several hymns and tunes, and by far his most popular is the hymn that we're discussing today, and that's Man of Sorrows. This is a hymn that beautifully celebrates the glory of the Lord's atonement, and it most helpfully conveys the idea of of Jesus in my place. First verse says, Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim, hallelujah, what a Savior. Later says, guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Bearing shame and scoffing rue, in my place condemned he stood. I I repeat these lines just to get the idea of this Jesus in my place Mm. motif that's woven throughout the hymn. And each verse, each verse uh, uh, triumphantly resounds in praise to God with the line, hallelujah, what a savior. Alex, what are thoughts you have on this hymn? What do you like about well, well, this hymn? Well, just in the con- there's so much I like about this hymn. Just in the context of the previous discussion about the particularity of the atonement, that's all over the place in this song. Hmm. Uh, Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. He came for what purpose? Ruin sinners to reclaim. The idea is he came for a purpose. He came to reclaim ruined sinners. Did, did Jesus fail in that mission, or was it a mission accomplished? Hmm. Uh, bearing shame and scoffing ruin. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hmm. It's actually accomplished. Hmm. My pardon was sealed by the blood of Christ. The, the option wasn't just made possible. Yes, it wasn't hypothetically with his blood. sealed. Right. It, it, it wasn't that he just sort of made a way by which, in theory, my pardon could be sealed hmm. by his blood. He sealed it hmm. by his blood. Uh, guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be, and that gets back to kind of the, just the, the point I was making earlier about you know who is really limiting the atonement. Hmm. I I would argue what, what, what we're putting forward is a full atonement, you know, uh, sixteen ounces to the pound atonement, right. Right. you know, uh, that is filled up. All the benefits are there. Everything is accomplished in this atonement. It is an atonement that seals our pardon with the blood of Christ. It's an atonement that accomplishes redemption, reconciliation propitiation, salvation, forgiveness of sins. And I love the way, you know, artfully this, uh, this hymn captured. That, that line in particular is my favorite line, guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. That, that stark contrast, mm. just how sinful and perverse and wicked we are, how beautiful and perfect and spotless he is. And that's what sort of, that, 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 that contrast Darkness and light, right? Uh, evil and holiness, ugliness and beauty. That contrast is what 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 issues forth that next line. So can there really be full atonement? Hmm. If, if this is the contrast, if hmm. I'm in the guilty, vile, and helpless category, hmm. he's the spotless Lamb of God. 
can my heart really believe that mm. there's been a full atonement on my behalf? It's so, so well written. And it's, it's easy to sing. I feel mm. like people so easily enter into yeah. the language. Yeah. It, it's not antiquated or anything like that. Um, oh, I love this song. Yeah, I think it's one of the one of the many songs that works very well a cappella. Oh yeah, and really any arrangement, full band, piano, guitar, it all I, works. I agree completely. Yeah, I have I have a friend uh, who who has um, uh, asked that 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 we sing this at his funeral, and um, I, I think there's there's few hymns I think that would be better suited to such a an event. Uh, someone who has died safely in Christ and they want to make much of the man of sorrows who is the savior for sinners I think it's, it'd be a wonderful choice mm, Amen Well friends, we're out of time Alex, thank you for your time